Welcome to the Vineyard Church of Greater Portland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Mario Mastin. For more podcasts and other resources, please visit www.vineyardportland.org. So, hey, we're here this morning to worship God, right? And worshiping God is what we have been doing, and worshiping God is what we're doing. And worshiping God is what we're going to continue to do. And, uh, but that begs the question, what is, what is worship? Tom Wright, as uh, any of you that's been around here for a while knows, is my favorite theologian. And, um, and that's not just because he's English. It's because <laughs> it's he has a phenomenal grasp of the reality of the kingdom. And this is what he says about worship. That is what worship is all about. It is the glad shout of praise that arises to God the creator and God the rescuer from the creation that recognizes its maker, the creation that acknowledges the triumph of Jesus the Lamb. That is the worship that is going on in heaven, in God's dimension all the time. The question is, how we ought, to be, we ought to be asking ourselves is how best might we join in what's going on in heaven? Worship. And I love that phrase, worship is the glad shout of praise rising to God. You know, there's no more beautiful expression of worship, I think, in the written word than we find Uh, in the book of Psalms. That's just my personal opinion. Um, And this morning, we're going to join in the worship that's going on in heaven by entering in to that great psalm of praise, which is Psalm 136. Let me say a little bit about that psalm before we look at it together. It's part of the great halal, which halal is the Hebrew term for praise. And Psalms 120 through 136 are the great halal psalms, psalms of praise. And within that, Psalm 120 to 134 are called the psalms of ascent. And they were sung during the three annual festivals As the Jewish pilgrims ascended up to Jerusalem, they would sing those psalms. And they were part of these great halal psalms, psalms of praise, but they were called psalms of ascent because they were ascending up to Jerusalem in the three annual festivals. And they would sing these psalms as they were in procession. Psalm 136 is a psalm in response to the Psalms of Ascent, 120 to 134. It's a hymn of thanksgiving associated with the Feast of Passover. And in its form, Brad, if you're still in here, you'll like this. Makes me sound like I know something about music, which I really don't. Not technically. Is antiphonal. And what that means is, It's a psalm that was said or sung in response to another. 
When this psalm was sung, it was probably the Levitical song leader or the choir master who would lead the recital. And the entire group of worshipers would respond with an with a refrain. So the song leader, the Levitical priest or song leader, would make an annunciation, would, would recite something about God's greatness, and then the whole chorus of the Jewish assembly would respond with a refrain in unison. I can't imagine what that would have been like as they were ascending to Jerusalem and this was going on, this act of praise, initiation and response. So today, we are going to do something which the Hebrews did. Something which actually our brothers and sisters in other streams across the body of Christ, across this globe, do every week. But which to us in the vineyard is a little bit different. We're going to engage in liturgical worship. Liturgy just means the form or pattern that the worship takes, which is replicated. Our liturgy this morning is going to be this great halal psalm that the Hebrews sang, Psalm 136, as they made their way to Jerusalem. And it's going to involve a recital on my part and a refrain on yours, although I'm going to join you in that refrain. Okay. So, this is how it goes. I'm going to read the declarations about the Lord, and we will all in unison respond with this phrase, His love endures forever. Got that? His love endures forever. So, please stand. I don't want you seated while we do this. If you're not able to stand, then please remain seated and just participate from your seat. But if you can stand, please do. So the words that I will recite will appear on the screen for you to see. And then they will be followed by another slide with the refrain, which is, His love endures forever. And as we do this, this is not just an exercise we're doing. Let's enter into a spirit of worship and praise. That's what the Jewish pilgrims did as they made their way up to Jerusalem. So let's worship, because we have entered into Yahweh's sanctuary just as the Jewish pilgrims did when they entered into that place in Jerusalem. So let me begin. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens, his love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters, his love endures forever. Who made the great lights, his love endures forever. The sun to govern the day, his love endures forever. The noon and the stars to govern the night, his love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, 
His love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them. His love endures forever. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his love endures forever. And brought Egypt and brought Israel through the midst of it. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. His love endures forever. To him who led his people through the desert. His love endures forever. Who struck down great kings. His love endures forever. And killed mighty kings. His love endures forever. Sion, king of Amorites. His love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, his love endures forever. And gave their lands as an inheritance, his love endures forever. An inheritance to his servant Israel, his love endures forever. To the one who remembered us in our low estate, his love endures forever. And freed us from our enemies, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. You can be seated. So I want to speak this morning about his enduring love from this psalm, which is the repetitive refrain that we have just entered into as an act of worship and which the Jewish pilgrims did regularly as they celebrated the Feast of Passover, as they ascended up to Jerusalem. So there's a direct line between what we just did now and what they did way back then, thousands of years ago, as they worshiped God. Let me tell you a little bit more about this psalm. It begins, as you saw, with a three-part invitation to join in thanksgiving in verses 1 and 3. And three Hebrew terms are used for God to make clear who it is that we're invited to thank and precisely who it is that we have gathered to praise. And I want to think about that for a few minutes right now. The first psalm, uh, first the psalmist invites us to give thanks to the Lord, he says, for he is good. The term rendered Lord here in the Hebrew is a word known as The name of four letters. The name of four letters. Hebrew script only used consonants, so there is no way to know how that name was really supposed to be pronounced. Now stick with me on this this morning. You're going to learn something that you may not have known before you came in here today. The consonants were Y-H-W-H, right there. And the best guess that scholars have made as to how that's pronounced is Yahweh. Now, we don't know for sure that that's the accurate pronunciation, but that's the best guess based on those consonants that are used. To the Israelites, the name of God was holy. From several hundred years from before the birth of Jesus, the Jews were not to utter that word aloud. They were not to speak it. With the exception of the high priest, and he could do it only once a year when he entered the Holy of Holies. 
Orthodox Jews to this day will still not speak that name because they consider God's name to be holy and as such, therefore, not to be uttered in that way. The Hebrew word that they use for God instead is the word that means the name, the name that they won't utter, and that is Hashem, to refer to God. Tom Wright points out that the ancient Israelites, when they came to those consonants, Y-H-W-H, that we pronounce Yahweh now, would say instead Adonai, and Adonai means my Lord. To remind themselves what they had to do, they would sometimes write the consonants, that's Y-H-W-H, with the vowels of Adonai. Because some letters were interchangeable, like Y and J, W and V, they created a hybrid. And that hybrid word that they created that they would use is the word Jehovah. Tom Wright also points out that ancient Israelites... And early Christians, that name would have meant nothing to them. They wouldn't have been familiar with it. The word here appears as Jehovah is actually originally Yahweh. The term means I am who I am. I will be who I will be. It means God is the self-existent and unchangeable one. We have come to give praise to Adon or Adonai, the sovereign one. To each of these declarations of who God is and for all that God has done and will do, the congregation of God's people are to respond in unity of heart and voice with the refrain, His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. And the psalmist instructs us and reminds us why we are here worshiping God this morning. First, to thank God for his creative power in verses 4 to 9. As God and King alone, the Lord is to be praised for the great wonders in his creation. The fact that he made the heavens and the earth and the great lights, what the psalmist calls the sun to govern the day and the moon and stars to govern the night. Carl Sagan was a great cosmologist. But he failed to understand this basic reality that God created the heavens and the earth and the sun to govern the day and the moon to govern the night together with the stars. In other words, the God who spoke the wonders of creation into existence, the God who made us in his own image is the very pinnacle of that creation. Is the same God who speaks the word of redemption into the brokenness of this world. He is the God who creates kingdom order out of chaos. He's the one who recreates a new image in us because the original image has been marred. And God is all about restoration and recreation. In other words, his love makes us new. Know this this morning if you don't know it and didn't know it until now. What God's love does is restore and make new. And he's doing this all the time in our lives. Paul puts it best 
in this passage that most of you will know very well in Corinthians when he says, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Eugene Peterson has a great way of rendering this in the message. It goes like this. What we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start. It's created new. The old life is gone. The new life burgeons is what he says. The enduring love of God is such in Christ that he has initiated a redemption that restores us and fulfills us and gives us a purpose in his creation. All things are made new through Jesus. In him, all things are restored. His love makes new. Know that in your heart this morning, that the love of Jesus is continually making new in your life. This means something. It means we no longer have to live mired in the brokenness of the past. Confined to the old life of sin and self. Condemned under the law and alienated from God. That's the past. We no longer have to live there. We are new creations in Christ. Paul says we're competent ministers of a better covenant. A covenant of the spirit and of life. Paul says at the end of Galatians, what counts is a new creation. And you know who's responsible for that? God in Christ. And Paul says that's what really counts. When you get down to it and all the other stuff is brushed away, what matters is a new creation and the person that initiates that is God in and through his son Christ made known and a reality through the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. God loves us and has made us new. God loves you and has made you new and wants to make you new if you've never stepped into that place of being made new by him. This truth breaks the power of guilt. We don't have to truck guilt around with us when we know that we have been made new and are constantly being made new. God doesn't deal in the condemnation business. God does deals in the conversion and transformation business. That's what God does. The power of hopelessness can be broken. And the power of fear about the future. All because we have been made new in Christ. Then the psalmist says, we don't just come to thank God for his creative power. We thank God for his delivering power. uh, Verses 10 to 15. We now move from God of creation to the God of history. From the one who not only had creative power, but has delivering power. And there's a difference between those two. We move from Genesis to Exodus, from Exodus to the wilderness, from the wilderness to the promised land. This is the God of history making known and demonstrating his delivering power. The psalmist records the wonderful acts of deliverance that God did for Israel in that psalm that we just worshipped to this morning. He says his enduring love brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He divided the Red Sea. He destroyed Pharaoh's army. He led the people through the desert into Canaan. He delivered them from the bondage of Egypt, from the impossible and impassable Red Sea from their enemies, and into 
Canaan, the land he had promised. The God who delivered Israel is the same God who delivers us. So this is not just about the past, it's about the present and the future. The one who liberated Israel from the power of Egypt is the God who liberates us from the power of this world. The one who made a miraculous way for the Jews by holding back the Red Sea so they could cross over is the same God who made an incredible deliverance for us even greater than holding back the Red Sea. And that deliverance came in the person of his son, Jesus. And through the cross, he held back the forces of death, destruction, and hell itself in order for us to be at a Passover from a place of judgment into a place of life, from a place of death into a place of life. In other words, his love doesn't just make us new. His love sets us free. Jesus said that he came to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. Those are the words of Jesus. At the inauguration of his kingdom ministry, he stood up and he said that he had come to proclaim freedom to those that were imprisoned. And he wasn't just talking about physical imprisonment. He was talking about an imprisonment that goes far beyond that. The imprisonment of a broken nature. And he went on to say this later, Jesus. If the Son sets you free, meaning himself, you will be free indeed. Once Jesus sets you free, you can be incarcerated physically and still have a freedom that transcends that physical incarceration. When you're free in Jesus, you are free indeed. We sang and worshiped this morning about the reality of Jesus delivering power to break us free from all chains, did we not? That's what Jesus said he would do. He said, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. The love of God in Christ sets us free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. His love is a delivering and enduring power that continually frees us from the prisons of addiction, of anger, of bitterness, of comparison, of condemnation, of criticism, of disappointment, of disillusionment, of failure, of hopelessness, of hurt, of judgment, of reaction, of resentment, of religion, of selfishness, and of sin. He sets us free from those things. His love is the divine power, Paul says, to demolish strongholds. Is it not? It is. Every single stronghold that can be established, Jesus has delivering power to bring down. And when we worship him, that power is released. God is committed to your freedom and mine. He's committed to the freedom of everyone the other side of those doors. Jesus is not a respecter of persons. He loves everyone. He wants them to have what we know. Because he loves them as he loves us. He's done everything necessary for you and I to step in the, into the freedom that he's made available for us. And he will do everything necessary through his spirit for us to walk in that freedom once we've made that step. 
So praise him for his enduring love that does not just make us new, but sets us free. And the third thing the psalmist says about why we have come to worship God and why we should, should, should thank him is this. Thank God for his guiding power in verse 16. There's only one verse attributed to this, but it's so significant. The psalmist says this, who led his people through the desert. Ever been in a desert? Ever been in a desert metaphorically? For whatever reason. It's not always easy. It's a place where you can get thirsty. It's a place where you can lose your way. It's a place which requires endurance to keep going. In connection with Israel, even though they turned an 11-day journey into a 40-year trek of misguided meandering, God was faithful to guide them according to the declaration of Psalm 136. Even though through their fear and their failure, through their idolatry and their independence, through their disobedience and their disbelief, through their rebellion and their resistance, God remained faithful to them and led them through the wilderness. God is faithful. He's not a man that he should lie. And when we are faithless, he remains faithful. It was his enduring love for his people in the face of all that they did and all that they failed to do that brought them through the desert. It wasn't them that got them through. It was God. They did everything to prevent themselves from getting through. But God remained faithful to them because he loved them and his love endured for them. In our lives, the same is true. We go through desert seasons, some that we bring on ourselves, some that God orchestrates for us. Because sometimes God orchestrates desert seasons. After Jesus' baptism and fill, filling with the Spirit, it said the Holy Spirit led him into the desert, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Holy Spirit orchestrated that reality. Sometimes God orchestrates desert seasons in our lives. Sometimes, like the Israelites, we bring it right on ourselves. Sometimes we're in a desert because of self-will or sin. Sometimes it's God orchestrated. Whichever the de desert, the good news is Adonai, the sovereign Lord, is faithful to his people. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. That's the declaration of the New Testament. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. I hate to say that in a narcissistic culture like the one we live in, but we don't belong to ourselves anymore. So the question is not what's best for me and what do I want. He is our master. That's not a phrase people like to hear much today. No one's going to boss me around, man. He exercises divine dominion, and he's committed to leaving, leading us through the desert. He loves to direct us forward. And understand that when I talk about God owning us, I'm talking about the fact that he has given everything for us, so great is his love for us. And now he, he 
owns us like a father and mother own their child that's been born, you know, born bone of their bone, flesh of their flesh. That's what's happened to us spiritually.